James chapter 1, verses 12 through 17. These are the words of God. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Um, yeah, there we go. Verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil. And he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then, when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow." So over the past couple of weeks, we have talked um, a lot about this section and a lot about trial and temptation. Uh, we're going we're gonna to kind of uh, explode that a little bit today and explore it a little bit deeper, um, i.e. the school approach to things. We're going to look at how to, um, how to understand the Bible, how to interpret the Bible. Um, but the one kind of overarching theme that's really important in this section is that it shows a distinction between that which God gives and what God does not give, okay? So there's a thing that God gives, or there are things that God gives, and then there is something in particular that God will not give us. Uh, The thing that God does give is that which is good, pleasing, and perfect. Again, verse 17 says, Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Now, the importance of this passage is that if you have a good thing in your life, Uh, If you have a perfect gift in your life, you can be assured that God is the giver of that thing. Okay, so it's it's really important to understand that you can reverse engineer this verse and you should. God gives what is good and perfect and anything that you have in your life that is good and perfect was given by God. No one else gives that which is good and that which is perfect. Okay, now the struggle that we come to, I think most of the time, is discerning what is good versus what is perceived as good, right? What is truly objectively good, what God has given that is good, and then what is, um, what is just assumed as good. There's a lot of things, how many of you know that there's a lot of things that feel, smell, taste, and appear to be good? And they're not, right? Okay, so I think we all understand that. Um, but whatever is objectively good, whatever is perfect, God is the giver of that. So, so what does God give? Good things, perfect gifts, okay? What does God not give? Uh, well, we find it in verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. God is not the giver of temptation, God is not the one luring you or trying to um, entice you towards sin. So that's an important overarching piece that we need to always keep our minds firmly rooted in. So as we go through trial and temptation, we run into a problem. And the problem is that the words that are used are tricky. Uh, I'm going to show you today that there is one word that is used uh, that specifically means uh, temptation and it can mean other things, but it specifically means temptation, and it is used 
uh, as the word in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17, that God did to Abraham. And so that becomes a problem. It becomes this really challenging issue for us that says, wait a second, is God's word a contradiction? Is God's word contradicting itself? Or is there something I don't understand? And, And so what my whole point of today is, is to teach you better or to hope that you learn better how to interpret God's word. The need for rightly dividing God's word. Because there's a great need to rightly divide God's word. Here's a couple of things that I think you need to know about that. Number one, um, Number one, rightly dividing God's word is not so that we can flex our theological muscles to each other, okay? Rightly dividing God's word is not so that we can appear smarter than the next guy. Rightly dividing God's word is not so that we can establish our church as the better church in the city. Rightly dividing God's word is not for any other purpose. And this is hard. It is for the purpose of understanding and living. That's the point. We get so caught up in our arguments and our fights that we forget the point of this is to live. The point of this is to honor God. But we can't seem to get it because we go, you don't have it right or you don't have it right, right? That's just what we do. And then we become the very problem that Scripture says, and that is we're hearers of the word, but we're not doers of the word. Amen? And, and because we're hearers and not doers, and because we're proud of what we hear or what we think, we just kind of look down on everybody else. You know that that's not pleasing to God either, right? He's not, he's not going, hey, at least you got it right. You didn't live it, but at least you agreed with the truth of the principle. That's not how this works. How it works is that we live out what God has called us to do. So, so, I think it's really important that we rightly divide God's word. The second thing that I want to share with you is that many people uh, struggle with the need to go back to original languages, the Greek and the Hebrew. Many people struggle with this because they, they basically think that God has made this terribly complicated. And now, as 21st century Americans, we have to go learn a language we are not accustomed to and probably never will fully become accustomed to. I'm 41 years old. I ain't going to get there anytime soon, okay? So, um, and I'm just saying, there's a little snow on the roof in this room, so I don't think you're going to get there either. Um, but here, here is my point. God, has not, God is not the one who has made it complicated to understand his word. We are the ones who have made it complicated to understand his word. How so? How so? Because not even intentionally, Because over time, what we've done is we've translated those original words into every language possible. And sometimes the translation doesn't click. It doesn't fit. And so we get to English and we give it the best shot we got. And then we find out later it was wrong. And then we get mad. Why has this got to be so complicated? Well, it's got to be complicated because we keep complicating everything. It would be nice if we could all learn that language or those languages and get back to that. But even then, it is not an easy thing. Don't think for a second that ancient Jewish scholars didn't debate the Hebrew Scriptures. They did. And they didn't even have to worry about English. <laughs> right? They, did, they, they debated it. How many of you know that New Testament scholars or New Testament uh, first century church people debated the Greek in the first century? They didn't even have English. Contrary to popular belief, Jesus did not speak King James English. 
okay? He did not speak it, okay? I know, I just got death stares from a couple of people, but whatever. Okay, so the, my point in this is that interpretation matters. Interpretation is an important thing, but it is ultimately important so that we might live God's Word, okay? So here's how we're going to begin to interpret God's Word. This is the lesson for you. It'll be on the screen. I want you to write this down. Here is how you interpret the Bible. We're going to employ the scientific method to interpreting the Bible. What that should be called is the common sense method. But anyway, it's still called the scientific method, and here's what it is. First thing we're going to do is we're going to make an observation. You know what that means with Bible reading? It means you read it, (laughs) right? The number one step in trying to understand the Bible is read the dang thing. You cannot hope to understand it if you don't read it. And here's where this gets a little bit dicey for people. I mean you read it. I don't mean your tradition read it and you just gravitate to what they say. I don't mean grandma read it and you take what she said as gospel truth. I don't mean listen to mama, listen to daddy, listen to the preacher. I don't mean that. I mean you read it. So step one, observation. We have to read the text. Step number two, this is a common scientific method. We ask questions, don't we? We ask questions, or when we encounter a question, uh, we take that question seriously. So for a biblical text, you read it, and then you say, most of the time, what does that mean? <laughs> Can I get an amen? amen? Right? What does that mean? There's your question. There's step two in the observation. Now, here's, the, here's where we trip up. Here's where the scientific method fails in science. Uh, And it's going to fail in biblical interpretation because what happens is we employ the third method, the third step, but we stop there. And then you'll see why it's a problem. So step number three, we've we've made the observation, we've asked the question. Now we're going to posit an informed answer. It's called a hypothesis. We're going to give some sort of informed answer. Listen, we're not talking about uh, just a subjective answer. This is what happens in Bible study in small groups. This is the question that I hate more than any question in the world. What does this passage mean to you? No one cares. <laughs> no one should care. No one should care what it means to me either. What we should care about is what does the passage mean? Not what does it mean to me. What does it mean? And then the question we ask after that might be something like, well, does it apply to me? And if it does, how does it apply to me? And then we live according to that, okay? So we make an observation, we ask a question, we answer that with an informed answer. And that informed answer requires a whole lot of tools, rightly dividing the Word of God. It requires dissecting things, it requires word studies, it requires all kinds of things to get an informed answer. It also might just require listening to testing this, but listening to a trusted source, okay? That's, I think, what we all do. Here is the big hang-up. In science and in biblical interpretation, most people stop there. You've answered your own question, and you're mighty happy with your answer, but you've never stopped to see if there are other answers to that question. You've never thought through the idea somebody else might actually have thought this through deeper, harder, longer, and they might have a real big challenge for you in your idea. But instead of doing that, what the church does is we become dogmatic. And there's nothing wrong, I think, with 
good dogmatism, okay? Being sure of something, holding on to something deeply. Just like I don't find a problem with somebody who says, I'm a fundamentalist. How many of you cringe when you hear that word? Fundamentalist. It's not a bad word. It just means you believe in the fundamentals. But most people don't actually think that anymore. They just think you're just being stubborn, <laughs> right? And some of you are. <laughs> but, um, but the idea is our, our misplaced dogmatism comes when we say, I have observed something, I've asked a question, and I've given my own answer, and my answer is sufficient. My answer is the best answer that there can be. And you cannot ever challenge me. And in the church, guess what happens? We argue and we fight and we constantly disagree. Because why? Because we stopped at step three. I got my answer and I'm going to heaven with it. <laughs> you might not be. Anyway, so the idea here is that we've got to get better at this. So what is step four? Test your answer. Test your answer. And guess what you're going to test it against? The Bible, the whole of God's Word. You're also going to test it against other answers who have tested their answer against the Bible, the whole of God's Word. So when you start doing that, it becomes really uh, life-giving to me, um, but it may become challenging for you. It may become challenging because uh, the belief you've held for so long might need to be filed in the round file, right? It it might need to go bye-bye. I think all of us have those things. Uh, As a matter of fact, I would state it this way. All of us hold to beliefs, all of us hold to ideas or beliefs of the Scripture that are wrong. And if we knew what they were, we would throw them away. But we don't know what they are, so in the meantime, we should be humble and listen. Yes? Yes? You guys are all looking at me like, I really didn't want to come to school today, but <laughs> tough, you're, you're in school. So observation, ask a question, answer the question, then test the answer, and listen to other sources. Here's where the hang-up comes. I did a whole podcast on this on Thursday. The hang-up comes in testing the answer uh, because most of us don't, want, don't know how to listen to dissenting opinions. How many of you do this? You won't raise your hand, so I don't know why I'm asking. Um, How many of you start reading an article, you get a paragraph in, you find that it disagrees with you, and you just close the window? Yeah, thank you for actually being honest with me. We've got a problem. We've got a problem. Because just because something disagrees with you does not mean you throw it away. If, in, if nothing else, reading a disagreeing idea fully helps you know their argument better so that you can beat it better, okay? But most of us won't do it. We get a paragraph in, we're like, oh, this is starting to make me mad. How many of you get upset when you hear a dissenting opinion? Specifically on the news. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All of a sudden, Barney's hand shot up, right? See, so, so I, have this, I have this really horrible way of doing things, and Sarah has asked me a thousand times uh, why I do this to myself. I enjoy listening to the people who disagree with me. I do. I enjoy listening to the people who disagree with me. Why? Because I also like to argue. 
<laughs> it's amazing. Anyway, so I like to argue. I like to listen to the people who disagree with me. And I am not going to tell you that it's easy all the time. There are times when, I, when I'm reading through something or I'm listening to somebody or whatever it is, and I'm like, what in the world? How in the world do you see things this way? But I keep going all the way to the end, even though I'm ready to have my blood boil, right? I go all the way to the end because I need to understand the opposite side before I go making some sort of a harsh judgment that says, I'm right, you're wrong, period, done, Okay? So we need to do this. And there are many hot-button issues in the church that are going to require us to employ this method, but at the same time, listen to other people's opinions. How many of you know that there are a lot of opinions on eternal security, whether or not what Jesus does for us is, is forever or conditional based on faith or other things? How many of you know those are big disagreements? Yep. And guess what? I settled it. I know the answer. No, that's, that's not true. Um, so it's a challenge, right? It's a challenge. I'm glad, I'm glad you know I've settled it, Dave. Anyway, so uh, how many of you know that there are huge disagreements on what happens at the end of days, the end times? I have the right answer again, okay? So everybody else is wrong. Nathan's right. It's, it's just absurd. The, the point is there are many things that we have to study we have to observe, ask questions about, answer those questions, and then listen to the other answers. I have a, several books in a series on my shelf in my office that are X amount of views on a particular topic, right? Gospel and law, for example. Five different views on the marriage between the gospel and the law. Five different views. And they're all heady, and they're all backed with Scripture, and they're all very well-articulated arguments. I agree with one in particular, but that does not mean I get to throw the other four out, does it? Right? So it becomes really challenging. So, I've talked enough about this setup. We know what the scientific method we're apply, applying is. Observe the text, question the text, answer the question that we have asked, and then test that answer with other, um, with other answers and with the full uh, text of God's Word. So let's deal with observation number one. We are going to go with verse 12 on this one. It's the daily trip out with Becca. Okay, so verse 12... Oh, that child. She has definitely tested us more. It's not temptation. Well, it is because I want to kill her. Um, um, she has tested us more than any other one of our children. And guess who she's most like? Sarah. Anyway, observation one. Observation one. Here's the verse. And we got to read it, guys. We got to read it. Step one, read the Bible. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Now, you may have a thousand questions already of a text like that. It, this is what I do constantly. Blessed is the man. Is there any connection between this and Matthew 5 and the Beatitudes? 
This seems like a beatitude. Blessed is. Could be. That's a question. It's worth positing some sort of answer to. Next one. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. What would it mean to persevere? What what does that look like? Well, we're going to try to answer that because that's part of the bigger question here. Under trial. What, What is the word here for trial? Well, this word is pronounced pirosimos, I think. It's the best I can get at it. Pirosimos. And uh, this is a test. This is something a little bit different than temptation. So let me give you, uh, let me give you the definition from um, Launida, which is a very trusted um, lexicon. So here is the definition of parismos. Or parisimos, I don't know. To try to learn the nature or character of someone or something by submitting such to thorough and extensive testing. To test, to examine, to put to the test. Again, an examination or testing. Okay, so let's say that that is the word. And I'm good with people who say I want to explore that. I want to ask deeper questions. How did they arrive at that meaning? That's fine. We can do that. But for kind of a layman view of this, we have to look at it and say, blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. This is finding the character of a man. This is not the same thing as temptation, isn't it? Is it? Right? Isn't it? I don't know what I'm saying. Is it? Later, we're going to see another word used, and that is the word for temptation. But then I'll show you that temptation and trial get mixed up as well. So the question that I would ask as the most important question of this, for me, the most important question, is what in the world is being tested? I know the man is being tested. I know that a person is being tested. But what about that person is being tested? I mean, we have to talk about persevering, but persevering in what? Do you ever think about those things? Persevering in what? And what's the connection with persevering in salvation? Because there's a really hard line here. It says, for once he has been approved, once he has been approved, that is, he's passed the test. That's the literal translation of been approved there. Once he has passed the test, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who, what's that line? Love him. Okay, so, so love him. Well, what in the world does love God mean? These are the challenging questions that we have to answer. So let's start answering that. Let's say faith is the thing that is being tested. That's what I am proposing here. Well, faith is connected with love, isn't it? Right? Faith, hope, and love, the greatest of these is love. Right? We, we are, there's a, a kind of a trifecta of Christian ethics there that are supposed to be there. And we're called to love God. Notice that it also says once he has been approved, which implies that multiple tests occur. It doesn't say if he, if he passes the test the first time. It doesn't say that. It says once he has been approved. Once he has passed the test. Well, how many of you know that God will submit the test to you many times in your life for you to pass? Why does he do that? So we can learn. What else? Why would God submit the test to you? Because he loves us. Does he want you to pass the test? Yes, he wants you to pass the test. So he's going to keep quizzing you 
until you get it, okay? And there's challenges in understanding that. But there's something connected here of approving or passing the test and actually receiving the crown of life. Don't, please don't fall for the idea that if you fail the test one time, that God says you're out. Please don't believe that. You know why? We're going to use the Bible to prove itself because all of the stories of all of the characters in the Bible continue to prove that they failed multiple times and God still walked them through their journey, didn't, didn't he? Right? David fails colossally many times, doesn't he? Does God love him? Man after his heart. Right? Abraham failed many times. Does God love him? Yes, he continued to test him. There were many, uh, well, let's do it this way. How many people in the Bible have uh, fallen short of God's glory? All of them. <laughs> How many people in this room have fallen short of the glory of God? All of them. Are all you written off? No. So just life itself shows us that this is not actually the case. I'll tell you where I struggle with this. I struggle with this not in knowing the truth, but in believing the truth. How many of you struggle with that? Yeah. I can say all day, the Lord forgives. The Lord is gracious. The Lord is slow to anger. Except for me. You should see the fireballs he has waiting, right? This is what I think. This is the problem that happens. He is going to crush me, and I am just waiting for it, right? Knowing something and then believing it, that's hard, right? That's hard. It's a big shift, and it's bigger than that gap between your head and your heart. It's the gap between uh, words on a page and a deep-rooted faith, a deep-rooted faith. So don't fall for that idea, uh, although I fall for it all the time. So how do we test the idea that um, what God is actually testing is in fact our faith. Well, this is where the scripture writing comes down. So write this down. James chapter 5 verse 1. Let's start with James chapter 5 or verse 11. Sorry, that'll just be one more one on there. James chapter 5 verse 11. Here's what God's word says. The same writer who told us what he just told us in verse 12. He says, we count those blessed who endured. So what are we supposed to do, do in our faith? endure, right? You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. What was Job's greatest test? Say it again. He lost everything. What was, what was needing to be proved? Endurance, sure, but who has he got to trust? God. It's his faith that is being tested, right? His wife even said, forget it, curse God and die, <laughs> right? Thanks, honey. <laughs> this is not very helpful. Thought we were in this together. Not so much, okay? What did the devil say to God? The devil said, as soon as the screws are put to him, he's going to reject you. He's going to curse your name. He's going to walk away. That's a matter of faith, okay? So James chapter 5, verse 11 shows us, James himself is showing us that this is a matter of faith. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 
1 Corinthians chapter 9, write it down if you're not going to turn there, but 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and we'll start at verse 24. These again are the words of God. Do you not know that those who run a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Okay, so hold on a second. We're talking about salvation. We're talking about eternity. Will there only be one person in heaven? Okay, so how do we interpret that? Does that mean run in such a way as to beat everybody else out? Or does it mean run as though you're seeking for first place? It's to run as though you're seeking for first place. See, there is one who ran the race and won. His name is Jesus. Our job is to run after him solely because he already won us. Amen? So in view of mercy, what? Present your body as a living sacrifice. In view of mercy, run after him. Give him everything you have. So he goes on. He says, do you not know that those who run a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way as to win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. <laughs> hey, did you hear that, guys? I mean, it literally said in all things. That's stupid. Okay, you know what all means there? All. <laughs> exactly, okay. So self-control in all things. Then they do it. They, they then do it to receive a perishable wreath. But we an imperishable wreath or prize or crown of life. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. See, there is what the Bible is talking about. It's an aim issue. It's towards King Jesus. I box in such a way as not beating the air. I'm wanting to punch something, right? I want to hit something. But I discipline my body to make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I may self I myself will not be disqualified. There's a strange connection. The connection is faithfulness, endurance, and salvation. Guess what's going to happen? There's going to be another answer given to the interpretation of this. And the other answer is going to say, you got a real problem with your interpretation, Nathan, because what you're sounding like, you're sounding like you're saved by grace and something else. And I'm going to tell you, you are. Because James said it. And now you're going to get mad at me. But guess what? This is the point. There are alternative answers. And they are levied towards us. And we have to consider these answers. So, let's move from that one. Let's go to James chapter 2, verse 5. I'll clear up the panic in your heart in just a second. James chapter 2, verse 5. The word of God again, James himself. Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? Okay, so now there's this connection with faith and endurance and obedience and love. What is going on here? And all of that tied in to salvation. Okay, turn to John 14, 15. 
John 14, 15 is where we're going to have to find out what in the world love is in this or what is meant by love here. John 14, 15 says, if you love me, you will do what? You'll keep my commandments. Uh Uh-oh, more work. So love is connected to salvation. Love is connected to a crown of life. Love is connected to faith. That's connected to endurance. And now all of that's connected to obeying God's commandments. Okay, now turn to 1 John chapter 5, verses 2 through 5. 1 John chapter 5, verses 2 through 5. The word of God again. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. Are you sure, John? Yes, he's sure. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. Well, now we're weighing into some sort of idea of persevering inside of our life, isn't it? That's what that text says. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. It doesn't say whatever is born of God might overcome the world. It says overcomes the world. But that's challenged too with different views. So let's keep going. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Huh. Who overcame the world? Well, Jesus overcame the world. What did John say? This is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Well, guess what? There's a couple of ways of interpreting this. The same way that the Bible talks about faith being a gift, that you were given faith, is that faith is referred to as the body of work that is the gospel. You received the faith of the saints. Once delivered to all the saints, that faith that was delivered to you is what? Not some sort of spiritual deposit in your head. You don't walk around going, I I got faith, God gave me faith, so I don't have anything to worry about. That's not how we read that, although that is how some read it. Isn't this confusing? Don't you love it? This is why we have to rightly interpret God's word. And so what has overcome the world? Jesus has overcome the world. What has overcome the world? The faith that communicates that Jesus has overcome the world. That's what the scripture seems to be indicating here. So we go on to that last verse in 1 John 5, verse 5. Who is the one who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So now what's required in overcoming the world? Believing in Jesus. Okay, so now let's think about this. It's faith. It's love. It's obedience, it's endurance, it is salvation, it is all of this mixed together somehow communicating these ideas. So, this seems to confirm that we are saved by grace through faith, but it also requires we understand something about James chapter 2 verse 5. James chapter 2 verse 5, turn there. James chapter 2, we're actually going to go, sorry, not 5, verses 14 through 26. Listen to this passage, ladies and gentlemen. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, this is trust, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? 
You know what that is? It's a, it's a, a phrase written in Greek, a rhetorical question written in Greek with certain markings and indications that show the interpreter the implied answer is a negative. It's amazing. Why do we need to learn the original languages? Because there's a lot there that help us understand. The implied answer is, can that faith save him? The answer is no. You will not be saved if there is not faith coupled with a action. If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Again, it's asked, implying a negative response. What's, what use is it, church? It's of none. It's of no use whatsoever. Okay, so think about what James is saying here. He says our faith is to uh, take care of the widows and the orphan and the poor. That's our faith. That's our undefiled religion, that we are going to take care of the widow, the orphan, and the poor. You see somebody in that destitution, and you say, well, God bless. I hope you feel good. I hope you get better. And James says, is that real faith? The answer is no. That's not real faith. Okay? That's a challenge, isn't it? Look at what it goes on to say. Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. So Ephesians 2, 8 says that we're saved by grace through faith. But if that faith has no works, what does James say about that faith? It says it's dead. So it really doesn't matter. James doubles down. He goes full in to make sure that we understand this lesson. But some may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe that and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, dang it, James, why are you calling the church foolish? You should be more sensitive. Anyway, but you are willing, but are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? We're going to come back to Abraham in just a second, because that's where the test and the trial come in. Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works. Faith was working with his works. And as a result of the works, faith was perfected. Wow. You know why that is? Because when you trust God enough to act and he comes through in the act that you commit, the act that you participate in, your faith is bolstered. You get stronger. That's amazing. Why do we have such weak faith in America today? I'll tell you why. My faith is weak. Because God asks me to trust him and I only go so far. I only go so far. I say, God, I I can trust you to this point, and I can't trust you any further. And he goes, well, then you won't grow. You won't grow. You have to come into the water. You have to learn to swim. You have to do the hard work inside of this. You see that faith was working with his works, and a result of those works was faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which said, and Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. I love this. 
This is one of the more uh, common justifications of grace. Uh, we are saved by grace through faith, and that is alone, okay? But what does James just say here? He goes on this diatribe about faith must be coupled with works, and then he says, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, what does believe mean here? It means trust and action. Because he just explained trust and action together. You can't have one without the other. Do you see it? This is really, really important. Now let me tell you how this was interpreted during the time of the Reformation. Martin Luther, I love Martin Luther, and I don't like Martin Luther. I'll just be honest with you. I love him, and I hate him all at the same time. I do that with a lot of people, including myself, just in case you were wondering, right? Okay, so Martin Luther, do you know what he referred to the book of James as? An epistle of straw. You know what he wanted to do with the book of James and with the book of Hebrews? Remove them from the canon of Scripture. Why? Because they shot a hole in grace alone through faith alone. Because it was taken wrong. He literally wanted them removed from the Bible, church. (laughs) Because he had a different view. Do we throw Martin Luther out? Nope. You would be foolish to do so. But I can disagree with him vehemently there. And so did everybody else, so they didn't throw him out. (laughs) Right? kept James because what does the Bible say if we're really if we're going to ask a question of it if we're going to make an observation and we're going to ask a question of what's being tested and then we're going to answer that and it's going to be informed answer here's what we're learning God was testing God is testing um, our faith he is going to test our faith and as he tests our faith what is he looking for in order to gain that crown of life he is looking for obedient trust That's what he's looking for. He's looking for obedient trust. You trust him, take your son to the top of the hill. You trust him, you say no to that situation. You trust him, you walk after him with all your heart. Now let's just get real. Is that easy? Ethan, is that easy? Not even close to easy. Not even close to easy. But that's still what he's doing with us. And guess how often God is going to do this until we, approve, we are approved. Over and over and over and over again. And we sit there and we go, God, why, 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 why? And he goes, because I love you. I actually want you to be right. I want you to look like me. I want you to do this. Here's what we do instead. We answered the question our way. All I have to do is sit in a chair and just say, I just trust in Jesus. I trust in Jesus. Meanwhile, James says, what good is that trust if you're not going to do anything with it? Wow. Wow. So what's the point of me sharing this? And I'll move on to our next observation. I have have six or seven observations and realized at the time I'm never getting through them. (laughs) Um, What's the point of this? The observation of the very same text, the observation of the very same ideas become opposed by many people in the church. Even people who we all laud as some of the greatest that have ever lived. Okay? What do we do with it? When they're wrong, they're wrong. It's not that big of a deal. They're human. Don't glorify them, please. 
When we're wrong, we're wrong. When we seek truth, we need to seek it with all our heart. We need to look for answers, and we need to weigh it against other answers. And even if those answers cause our tradition and our understanding to topple down like the house of cards they are, good. Go play cards, but believe the right thing. Right? That's what we're supposed to do. So, how do we test all of this? We keep testing it by God's Word. What are our results? We realize that God is going to test our faith. What is faith? Faith is going to be a trusting obedience in Him. It's going to always be married together. Um, Counter-arguments of this, again, are strict views that James and Hebrews should be tossed. And challenging views that... Uh, by grace alone through faith alone means that uh, if it is ever a part of your works then somehow you are trying to earn your salvation I love what Dallas Willard always said and that is that um, the faith is not uh, faith is opposed to earning it is not opposed to effort faith is not opposed to effort God wants you to run in such a way as to what win win the prize observation number two trial and temptation This is the challenging one. Okay, here's what the verse says. I'll get back to James 1. Here's what the verse says. Verse 13. Let no one say he's being tempted. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil. And he himself does not tempt anyone. He does not tempt anyone. So the first thing that we have to understand is this word here for temptation is pirazo. Uh, It means trying to make someone make a mistake. Temptation. Trying to make someone make a mistake. This is the thing the scripture says God does not do. What was that other word that we learned? Parisimos, which is to try uh, and to learn the nature or character of someone through extreme testing. Okay, so what does God do? He tests, but he does not tempt, okay? He does not tempt. Also, does the phrase God cannot be tempted mean that he cannot uh, face temptation himself? Obviously, it doesn't mean that. Why do we know obviously it doesn't mean that? Did the devil tempt Jesus? Yes. Did the Pharisees tempt Jesus? Did the lawyers tempt Jesus over and over and over? It's not about whether or not he can be faced with temptation. It's actually a message that says he cannot be tempted. He cannot be tempted by evil. Now, I'm going to throw a huge wrench in here because this is going to challenge a lot of what people think. God tests. God does not tempt. But the problem is what do we do with Hebrews eleven seventeen? turn to Hebrews eleven seventeen. Hebrews eleven seventeen says by faith Abraham when he was tempted English translators have made that to say tested what word is used there perazo not perissimos What the heck? What's going on there? You guys okay with that? Is it unsettling? You don't have to throw anything at me. You just throw things at the interpreters, right? It's a challenge. But here is is a answer. I'm telling you that the main answer, 
the, or the answer from a skeptic is, here's one more contradiction for your stupid Bible. It's there. You can, you can levy that. You can weigh that. You can argue that, but you better have a good argument because they're going to go, it's your words. I'm using your words. I'm letting your lexicon speak. I'm letting your Bible speak. What happens there? Well, one of the more sound answers to this is that words do often have alternate meanings. But how do, we, how do we define an alternate meaning? How do we arrive at an alternate meaning? The same way we arrive at any meaning of a word. It's based on its usage. Did you know words don't mean anything? People mean things by words. I love that phrase. <laughs> Dr. Michael Heiser. Words don't mean anything. People mean things by words. And so you have to look at the context, and you have to understand what happens. And then you have to also understand that even in the art of translation, or in the, the, the act of translation, there are mistakes that can be made. You guys are all looking at me like, what? Did you know there can be English renderings that are mistakes, and it doesn't change the infallibility of God's Word? Did you know that? Because why? Because we made the mistake, not God right? So what do we do with Hebrews eleven seventeen? We understand that words have varying meanings and that words mean things by what the author intended them to mean. And we look to that by the context. We have to take Hebrews eleven seventeen along with Genesis 22. We have to take all of that in conjunction with the rest of God's word and understand if, God, if God's word says that he does not, he does not tempt then what is being referred to here is some variation of a test. Guess what a skeptic's going to say to you in that, in that defense? Nice try. They're going to say, nice try. And guess what you're going to do? You're going to say, it's what I got. <laughs> it's what I got. Listen, I'm not telling you that you're just going to argue with atheists all the time. One of these days, your kids are going to grow up, and they're going to ask tough questions if you've trained them well. And when they ask you that tough question, this is not your answer. Because the Bible tells me so. It works in kids' church. It does not work in real life. Because the Bible tells me so. Well, I know the Bible tells me so. The Bible also told you to rightly divide it. And you're being lazy. <laughs> Uh-oh. Barney, I'm sorry. I just, I, he keeps telling me, you're going to make more enemies. You can't say these things. Okay. What do we do with uh, Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 when, when we learn that, uh, let's turn to it, Hebrews chapter 4. <clears throat> I'm going to wrap it up here, guys. I'm, I could go, well, you know I can go for days on this stuff, so anyway, 14 through 16. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Do we know that God can be tempted? Yes, yes he can. But what did we learn? We learned also that God cannot be tempted, which means he is never lured towards anything wrong. So what do you do with that? What do you do with the fact that Jesus was tempted, but it didn't matter, he couldn't ever do wrong anyway, so how is it that he can sympathize with anyone? That's what a skeptic's going to ask you. If you say Jesus is 100% God and 100% man, 
and he walked this earth and he was tempted, what are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with these tough questions? I don't have an answer for you on this one. I intended to leave you squirming this week because it's a challenge. Is there something mixed in with God's man nature and not considering equality with God a thing to be grasped, but laying it aside and becoming a servant, even uh, obedient unto death? Is there something about that? I'm sure there is. I'm sure there is. Is the world going to be hard to that answer? Probably. If they are, what do you say? It's what I have. It's what I have. And you walk by faith and you trust God. See, the purpose of all of this church I'm just going to stop at that observation. The purpose of all of this church is to help you to understand that this is a complicated matter. None of this is easy. We don't just get to say, the Bible said so. You don't get to fight with people all your life saying, I believe this, and you Pentecostals are completely dead wrong, or I believe this, and you Charismatics are dead wrong, and there is a difference there, and oh, I believe this, and you Reformed people are dead wrong. You have to weigh the text. You can come to solid conclusions. When you do, you hold those convictions, right? You hold them deeply. Do you love each other in those convictions? I sure hope so. I sure hope so because we're not making it out of this life uh, with all the answers, (laughs) right? And if you meet somebody who thinks they have all the answers, you met Jesus, (laughs) right? Right? So you you should huddle up and follow him anywhere he goes, okay? It's This is challenging. I want to give you a confession. I struggle with this. I struggle with this a lot. I'm not a I'm not a gray area kind of guy. Did you know that? I'm not a gray area kind of guy. I like it black or white. I like you to give me the answer or tell me you do not know. But I do not like this little, uh, well, I'm going to give you a pat answer. I'm going to give you something. I don't like it, confession. I don't like it when people I talk to are ill-informed and think they know what they think they know. I don't like it. It's confession moment. I should just have a whole Sunday where I just get up here and confess to you guys. You will realize you don't want me as your pastor anyway. (laughs) I am a colossal mess. So we don't have the time. What I'm getting at, and (laughs) shut it. Anyway, can take all this from Barney, not from you, Mark. Teasing, teasing. All of this is challenging, and what it demands is we walk in grace. But interpreting the Bible should be done this way. This is your school lesson for the day, scientific method. Make an observation, ask a question, answer the question, and weigh it against other answers. And when you find an answer you disagree with, don't just write it off. Listen to the answer. Listen to the answer. Spend time. There are doctrines that I have spent the past two and a half years obsessing over because I want to know the answer to it. It makes my hair go gray. (laughs) It's crazy, but it, it has to be done for me. I have to have a black or a white. I have to know. 
I have to know. And the church needs to know. We need to know because we're living in a skeptical age. We need to know because we're supposed to be training our children. We need to know because we are called to endure to the end. How can you endure to the end in a faith? You have no clue what it says. How can you do it? You can't. Some of you look at me and go, Am I supposed to go back to Bible college now or something? No. Run in such a way as to win the prize. Give it everything you've got now. You can't make up for lost time, but you can do it now. You can run for it now. You can learn and trust and believe and rest in what God says. So all of this is challenging. God is not in the business of temptation. God is in the business of trying us because he wants our faith to be perfected. And our faith includes both our actions and our mind and its belief. And all of that is connected in endurance to salvation. All of it is connected to a crown of life that awaits us at the end. Isn't that amazing?